Welcome to Built to Go, a van live podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 163, and we're going to talk about that favorite topic of everybody living in a van, gray water. No, it's actually kind of interesting, and I've got some interesting stuff to share. We're also going to talk about the realistic possibilities of having a 12-volt air conditioning system in your van, a product review of a transfer pump, and we'll explain what that is, and a tale from the road involving almost dying, because <laughs> they're always fun. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I apologize for missing last week. Uh, the hits just keep coming, folks. This year has sucked, and it continues to suck, and I have been sick for weeks and weeks. I've gone to the doctor. I've done all these things, and just now I'm starting to feel a bit better, so here I am yapping in your ears or whatever you're listening to me with. I hope it's your ears. Could be your bones, I guess. Anyway, one of the reasons I want to bring up Greywater again is, well, over my time of owning RVs, and I've owned a lot of them, I've seen a few different ways of dealing with Greywater. So my, my very first camper, the very first motorhome I actually bought was a Toyota Chinook, a 1977 Toyota Chinook. These were fascinating little things. They were built on the Toyota Hilux pickup truck frame, and then there was a, a fiberglass back with a pop-up. Hugely popular at the time, and they're still sought after today. The Chinooks were wonderful. And my Chinook had a sink, and it had a refrigerator, and it had a portable toilet, uh, a recirculating portable toilet, which thankfully we don't use anymore. And, you know, the sink had water. It, it actually had a hand pump, and you'd, you'd pump the water by hand, and it would go down the drain. Okay. But then what? Well, the truth be told, on the Chinook, it, it had a cover on the outside. You'd undo the cover, and the water would just pour out. And you could attach a garden hose to it, but there was no tank at all. The water just ran outside. And the first time I used this in a campground, and I, I was young. I was 21, 22. I thought that's just what you did. You unscrewed the cover, and the water just poured out into your campsite. Well, the uh, host at the campsite disagreed with me and uh, had a little conversation about that. Apparently what they wanted you to do was to have the water go into a bucket of some sort that was outside the van and like, okay, lesson learned. But it was interesting that the Chinook didn't come with a way to deal with gray water at all. Now, fast forward to today where I actually own three RVs somehow. We've got the 1972 Winnebago Indian. We've got the 1993 Scamp 13 Deluxe. And we've got my van, which is a 2011 Sprinter 2500 ambulance that I've talked about way the heck too much. The interesting thing is that the Winnebago and the Scamp don't have gray water tanks. Neither of them do. Both of them are kind of the same as the Chinook, where the gray water just runs out. Now, in the case of the Scamp, it's exactly the same as with the Chinook. There's just a little cover on the outside. With the Winnebago, the gray water runs into the same pipes that the black water comes out of, and that gets a little strange. I don't actually know if that's the way it was from the factory, but that's the way I got it. But looking more into that, in my Winnebago, I found a very interesting way to deal with gray water and black water. When the Winnebago was built, it had a system in it where it would burn the black water and gray water while you drove it would actually drip it down onto the exhaust system and incinerate it as you drove. Now, this, this system 
didn't last very long. It was only available in a few different rigs, and apparently mine was one of them because I do have the electrical circuit in there for this. And it sounds like a great idea, right? Oh, it's no big deal. You fill up your tanks, and then as you drive, all that stuff magically disappears. And yeah, that, that doesn't exist anymore. I did look up the system and found out that they even made one for trailers. And if you think about that, well, trailers don't have an exhaust system. And what this had was a pump that would pump the black and gray water back into your tow vehicle and then redirect it to your exhaust system. Uh, <laughs> it sounds kind of crazy to me. I mean, yeah, it, all, it sounds kind of wonderful, but it also sounds insane. And uh, I'm kind of glad that that circuit's actually gone, especially since I don't drive the Winnebago anymore. So, obviously, this problem has existed for a long time, and people have tried interesting ways to solve it. These days, you've got a few things to worry about. First off, you have laws. There are laws against dumping gray water on the ground. Now, if you watch a lot of YouTube and you watch a lot of these van life people, you will notice that some of them, the folks who always boondock, the folks who often are just out in the woods for a lot of time, some of them don't have any plumbing in their van. Foresty Forest, uh, a case in point here, he's had two built-out vans. Neither of them has had so much as a sink. He does all that stuff in a bowl, and he disposes of it in the forest, and he doesn't ever show us that on the videos, but one can assume he digs a hole and, and fills it in or, or whatever. So is he breaking the law? Well, I don't know. It depends on where he is. But more importantly, is he harming the environment by doing this? And I would argue... You ready? No, I don't think he is. The problem with gray water and the reason there are laws against it isn't so much the gray water itself, it's the quantity. Now imagine you have a popular boondocking site that's right next to a river and you have all these rigs pull in and they stay for a couple of weeks and then as they leave they dump out their gray water and each of them's dumping like 35 gallons of gray water so multiply that by 10 20 30 rigs and suddenly you see the problem even biodegradable soap in that quantity can cause problems in the ecosystem so the laws are mostly about responding to a problem of quantity what should you do well, I would recommend you always follow the laws because the fines for these things can be kind of steep. Now, in BLM areas, it varies. Some BLM areas, they're totally fine with you dumping the water out on the ground. Others, they aren't. Most private campgrounds, it's not allowed at all, at all, at all. You're not allowed to have any leaks coming out of your vehicle. And in some places, you can only dispose of gray water in dump stations. It's treated basically exactly like black water. So most of us are going to have a gray water tank of some sort. I have a gray water tank in my van, and it's a, just a, one of those blue five-gallon water containers. That's it. My sink goes right into that. And then when it's time for me to dump it, I almost always dump it in some sort of safe place like a dump station. But what I will do is basically when I'm driving around, if I, there's a lot of free dump stations out there and interstate rest areas a lot of the times. Whenever I see those, I will dump the gray water in there. I never just dump it in the woods. Uh, and I may dump it on my own property, but that's my property. I get to do what I want to some extent there. Now, if you have a gray tank in your van, 
you also have the issue of keeping odors down because gray water and, and experienced folks will tell you this gray water can smell worse than black water i had an incident in my big wander lodge that i used to have where the gray tank got super stinky actually i think a few pieces of onion went down the drain and got in there and oh it was bad news so what i do in my van to help keep odors down is i this is true uh i use mouthwash and i actually just use the mouthwash listerine the the, the harsh stuff i use that like you would normally use it and i have found just by dumb luck that spitting that down the sink will deodorize the gray water and that's all i really do um the one time it has gotten bad i poured a little bleach in there and i always have bleach with me because that's what i use for the fresh water i always add a little bit of bleach to the fresh water and again i have my drinking water is a entirely separate system my drinking water is kept pure my fresh water plumbing in the van is for washing and things like that so i keep them separate Let's talk about some of the unusual things people have come up with to deal with gray water. Now, Burning Man, the big festival out there in the desert, they have a big problem with gray water because no one's allowed to dump any gray water onto the playa uh, because it will harm the ecosystem or the lack of ecosystem there, depending on how you look at it. And it will basically just turn it all into mud and it, it's unpleasant. So what a lot of folks up there try to do is um, they try to evaporate it. And so they will have the water go into like a swimming pool, like a, you know, a dog pool or a kiddie pool, and then have the water evaporate over time. And they're left with kind of this scum, but it's easier to deal with just in terms of quantity than all that gray water. And some of them have even come up with these elaborate rigs where this cloth will dip itself into the water and kind of rotate around and the wind will blow over it and help it evaporate like that. So, uh, you know, if you're established in a long-term place, you could just have all your gray water go into some kind of a pool and let a lot of it evaporate. You are going to have issues where water that's standing like that attracts wildlife. And I know that in Death Valley, if you have a thing set up like that, you're going to attract any kind of bees that are around. And there's a surprising number of bees in Death Valley, actually. So that's something to consider. But it's something you could do. One of the most clever things I've seen regarding gray water, and, and this is quasi-legal, I suppose, uh, was from a famous video of this guy who built out the most fantastic minivan. Now, he's not a big guy. He's maybe, I, I don't know how tall he is, but I would guess he's 5'5 five, five or less. And he built himself this fantastic minivan with all these sliding modules. Really high quality, really innovative. And his gray water solution is a little different. Um, he it has a gray water tank with his sink, just like you'd expect. But after he was done building his rig, he found that it had a leak and water would just drip out of it. And he was busy with other projects in his van, so he didn't get around to fixing it right away. And then he realized after a couple of weeks that his gray water problem just kind of sorted itself out it would gradually drip out. And as he drove, he would be letting a drip of gray water out every couple of feet down the highway with virtually no impact on the environment. And I thought that's actually kind of a clever solution. What if we just had kind of a, a drip of gray water coming out as we were driving? What's the harm in that? I mean, it's dripping on asphalt that's covered with oil and all kinds of other residues anyway. It's not going to be in any quantity that's going to cause a problem because it's just a slow drip. And you could even rig it up in such a way that you could turn it off while you were parked overnight or, you know, wherever you were during the day so you didn't make a puddle under the van. But even if you did, 
If you have air conditioning in your vehicle, you are already making a puddle. While that water is arguably cleaner than your gray water, no one's going to really think much about a puddle of water under a vehicle. And okay, yes, you've got issues with freezing temperatures and all that too, but as an overall general concept, I'm thinking this kind of solves a lot of problems. So I am toying with the idea of doing something like that in my van. Um, as it is right now, I just open a cabinet and take the five-gallon jug out and then dispose of it and then put the five-gallon jug back. It's a little bit of a pain. It's not a big deal. But when I'm doing these 10-hour drives, I mean, what if I could just dispose of the wastewater that way and heck if i were clever i could even drip it onto the exhaust and kind of duplicate what the old winnebago's used to have although i'm still not sure that's a good idea anyway if you have decided that you want to treat gray water like black water i highly recommend you download an app like all stays that has a list of dump stations all around the country and especially out west if you're in an area where there are a lot of rvs it isn't that hard to find free dump stations they're often found at rest areas. A lot of these small Midwestern towns have public campgrounds that are set up, like Aurora, Nebraska has the best public campground I've ever seen, and they have a free dump station there. Also, sewage treatment plants often have free dump stations, so there are ways to dump gray water for free. Also, you know, if you're in the five-gallon jug situation, you can always just dump it down a public toilet somewhere. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, just some more thoughts on gray water. I don't know why I'm up in the middle of the night thinking about gray water rather than dangling my toes over the end of my van on some nice beach somewhere, but that's what I do. Tech Talk. So I've been doing this podcast for a few years now, and every year as it starts to get warm, I give out the same message. No, you can't have air conditioning in your van if you're going to boondock. Yes, there's all kinds of products being sold out there. The Zero Breeze, the Icy Breeze. They all seem to have the name Breeze in them. Some of them are ice buckets. You fill them with ice and a fan blows and it keeps you... None of that stuff really works. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah, it all sort of kind of works. But in a practical sense, it doesn't really work. If you are heading out on the road thinking that... You're going to get your van to be the same temperature as your apartment or your house. Well, you're going to have to make an adjustment. You have to make the adjustment because it really isn't practical to climate control your van or RV or whatever you're in to be the same as the outdoor temperatures. I mean, even RVs that have air conditioners, those air conditioners don't really cool it down quite like a house. Usually they can get it down to maybe 80 on a hot summer's day, but... This year, I have a little bit of a different message. As technology has progressed, there are a number of 12-volt air conditioning systems on the market now, that are, and they're getting more common. And you mount these on the roof of your vehicle, just like you would a traditional RV air conditioner, but these run on 12 volts, which means they can run on batteries without an inverter, which will save you a ton of power. Sounds great, right? Well... We're still not quite there yet unless you're building out a super powerful rig because these things still use a ton of energy. Some of them draw over 100 amps. <laughs> so you're going to need batteries that have a 200 amp C rate just to get the thing started. And then if you want to run it all night long, you're going to need like a thousand amp hours of batteries, a lot of batteries. And those batteries are expensive 
and heavy. And the unit itself is expensive, uh, $1,500 to $2,500 to $4,500, depending on that range. And they're not as strong as many other air conditioners. Uh, some of the ones I've seen are uh, 6,000 BTUs, which is slightly more than a small window unit you'd have in your house. But because you're in a van, you actually need more cooling. Even though it's a small space, if you're in a place where the sun's beating down on you, you've got a huge heat gain that you have to deal with, so you actually need more cooling. Bottom line is, yes, it's more possible now than ever before but it's still very, very expensive to get it set up. And, and this is the big and, the hardest thing we're gonna have to overcome to make this a norm, you have to find a way to charge your batteries. And solar and even your alternator are going to take a very long time to charge up that much power. And that means you're gonna be able to use your air conditioning for a day and then maybe spend two days recharging your battery to get your air conditioners to work. Now, that said, people have made this work. There are people out there who have air conditioning in their vans, and they use it, and it works. But in every single case, they've spent a lot of money, or they found a way to have shore power. <laughs> or they're using a generator. That's another thing, too. So, yes, you can have air conditioning in your van. No, it won't be easy, and it absolutely won't be cheap. I have a link in the show notes to faroutride.com, which is a great van resource site. They have a whole section on 12-volt air conditioners, and you can click on that and check out the realities of what's available. And they're, they're not as down on it as I am, but they also seem to have an unlimited budget. <laughs> Product review. I picked up something a little strange, and this thing will help some of you, but not all that many, I don't think. But it's a 12-volt it's a water pump. And, you know, obviously, we're familiar with 12-volt water pumps. I mean, most people install a pressure pump, which is the kind that's found in an RV, that if the you turn on the faucet and the pressure go down, goes down a little bit, this pump comes on and goes... You know, and it sounds like a motorcycle passing or something. Until the pressure gets back, I'm going to shut off. That's a normal kind. Uh, a simpler kind, the kind that was in Westphalia Motorhomes by Volkswagen, is called a submersible pump. It's just a little pump that when you apply electricity to it, it pumps water out. Very simple. That's what I had in my first van. What I bought was a little different than either of those. It's called a transfer pump. This pump is meant to move water from one place to another. And yeah, you could hook it up to your sink if you wanted, but it's not really its purpose. This thing is to take water from one container and put it into another. And that's exactly a need that I have. My Winnebago has a, I think it's a 30 gallon fresh water tank, but I don't have any way to get water into it. <laughs> I don't exactly understand why, and this is true of a lot of rigs, but the fill for the fresh water is vertical. And I suppose that's to keep rainwater from getting in or any dust from falling in. But it makes it really hard to pour water in there because gravity don't go that way. So what I've been doing is bringing down 20, 25 gallons of water with me from Chicago every time I go down to the Winnebago and then struggling and fighting to get this water in there. But with the 12-volt transfer pump, all I have to do is hook the alligator clips up to a battery, and I've been actually using the battery in my tractor because I can move it, and then stick a hose into one of my containers I brought down from Chicago and stick the other hose into the inlet on the Winnebago, and it will pump five gallons in like 30 seconds. It's loud. It's kind of awkward, but man, it works, and it saves me a ton of time. 
Now, there's a whole bunch of these things. I will link to the one I got. It absolutely works. And you can use it for gray water, too, huh? or any other kind of water. Just know that, you know, whatever you put in there is kind of permanent. So if you're going to use it for gray water, don't use it for drinking water afterwards. Somewhere out there, I know there's somebody who has a similar problem. And, uh, you know, if you were in a situation where you could pull up your vehicle to a body of fresh water, you could actually use this to pull water out of, say, a pond or something like that. I don't know how well that would work. You've got three feet. You have to get the pump within three feet of where you're getting your fresh water from. So anyway, just a little weird one-off thing. I will have a link in the show notes, uh, but it's a 12-volt transfer pump. And uh, by the way, they make these for fuel, too. So you could potentially use them to get diesel fuel out of your diesel tank and move it into, say, your diesel heater tank. But that's a different pump. Same idea, different pump. Tales from the road. So I have probably told this tale before, but I will continue telling it every once in a while because uh, it's an important one. And um, this is a tale that has happened to many people and has killed many people. Fortunately, not me, although eh, it could have. So way back when I was working in Utah, I was working on farm, driving an F-150 pickup, manual transmission, which is what we always had back then. And a coworker and I are heading down to Lehigh, Utah, made famous by the movie Footloose with Kevin Bacon, the original. In fact, the field that we worked in was right by the big, the, the roller mills that are famous from that building. He does a dance in them, and we were kind of right in front of them growing asparagus. Anyway, a little too much detail. But I'm going down there hauling a tractor on a flatbed, and uh, I take the exit for Lehigh off of I-15 South, as we're going down the ramp, I, you know, I step on the brake and, you know, we're not slowing down. And I step on the brake a little harder and we're still not slowing down. In fact, we're speeding up. And so I'm pressing on the brake harder and harder and we're going faster and faster down this ramp. Now I'm in an F-150 hauling a tractor and yikes, uh, the brake isn't working and the vehicle's going faster. What do you do? Well, you've got a split second to make up your mind in this situation about what you should do. What I did, what I decided to do, was to take my left foot and step on the clutch. And then I put the shift in neutral. And the engine was still racing, but that helped slow us down a bit. And then, even though every instinct in my body told me it was the wrong thing to do, I took my foot off the brake. And as soon as I took my foot off the brake, we started to slow down. Why was this happening? What was wrong with this truck? Well, nothing wrong with the truck, except possibly a bit of a design problem. The problem was me, I was wearing big boots because I was gonna go work in the field all day in a tractor. I had on my big heavy boots. And what was happening is I had stepped on the edge of the brake and part of my boot was also pressing on the gas pedal. And I think this explains a lot of these sudden acceleration things is that people are actually pressing on both pedals and the gas pedal is a lot more sensitive than the brake pedal. And it's making the vehicle overcome the brakes and go faster. So, uh, I apologize to my coworker and, uh, I was glad to have avoided a wreck. It was still kind of rough. I ended up on the side of the road. You know, it was definitely a shaking experience, 
But the lesson I learned from this, and I, I have spread this message around through Team Rubicon, where I used to volunteer or tell people, you know, if you're going to wear these heavy boots, make sure you have some sneakers for driving. Wear sneakers when you're driving. You want to be able to feel those pedals. If I were wearing sneakers, this would not have happened. I would have been able to feel the difference, and I probably wouldn't have as wide a foot to be able to step on both pedals in the first place. Word to the wise, be careful of your foot placement. Try not to drive with boots. And if something like that does happen, put the vehicle in neutral at the very least. You can do that with an automatic. You can do it with a manual. Put the vehicle in neutral so at least you will stop going faster. And then give yourself a moment to figure out what's going on and realize you need to take your feet off the pedals and then reevaluate. A place to visit. So way back when I was doing my 50 states by 50 tour, I guess I had just turned 50, I was out in the middle of nowhere and decided that uh, I wanted to see just how far out into the middle of nowhere I could go. So I decided to go to the place in the contiguous United States that was farthest away from a McDonald's. <laughs> it's called McFarthest Place. Now, since I've been there, this spot has moved as McDonald's have closed and opened. So there's no point in me pointing out where that spot is because it varies. It changes almost weekly now. But yeah, I was like 275 miles from the nearest McDonald's in any direction. And, and I thought that was kind of fun. And I, I kind of like the idea of going to these super remote places, even on the continent where the United States is, because for a lot of us living in the East, it just doesn't seem like you can go very far without running into people. And <laughs> folks in the West, well, they may have a different opinion of that. But there is one town that takes the prize in the United States for being the most isolated town. And I'm not talking about a town with five people in it. I'm not talking about a place like Darwin in Death Valley. I'm talking about Glasgow, Montana. Now, I don't actually know how they pronounce it. We in the U.S. have a tendency to pronounce foreign place names that we've adopted in our own special way. For example, we have Cairo, Illinois. We also have Marcel's. <laughs> Des Plaines. I mean, that's just in Illinois. We, we have this tendency to do this. So I don't know if this is pronounced Glasgow or Glasgow or Glasgow, or I have no idea, but it's in Montana and it's really far away from anything else. In fact, it's five hours away from the next populated area. I mean, you might pass a farm or two, but if you go to this town, you are five hours in any direction from anything else. And and the reason it's significant is that it's actually a town. There's people living here. There's a community. There's things to do here. They have museums, shopping. There's even an Amtrak stop here. You can get here by train. And it's on my bucket list. I want to go to this place. I want to check it out. I want to go to these museums and see what it's like. And spend a little time in a bar or cafe and just and see how people are. There is a bar there called the Montana Bar that was open opened in 1899 and apparently everybody who goes there kind of has to stop there and if you visit this place so i'm told you will be treated with maximum hospitality and the lowest level of pretense possible <laughs> they also have a hot springs that's indoors and you can go check that out if you want to they have an excellent children's museum there is a wildlife refuge there with lots of buffalo because montana of course there is and nearby is fort Peck, which is kind of why this town is here. There used to be a military fort, and this was the town to support the fort. Fort's long gone, but the town is still there, and still actually alive, at least for now. I mean, this is an actual town of, of actual size. 
One of the weirdest things there, though, is Sleeping Buffalo Rock. So this is this is a rock, and Native Americans apparently called it Sleeping Buffalo because, surprise, surprise, it looks like a sleeping buffalo. But what's odd is this rock moves. <laughs> so apparently the legend is that sometimes the Sleeping Buffalo wakes up, and the rock will move, and you'll find it someplace else. And in fact, in truth... That has happened. <laughs> this rock is big, but it's not too big to be picked up and moved. And the local people have actually picked this up and moved it. <laughs> so it's in a totally different place now than where it was originally. So anyway, if you happen to be in Montana and you are looking for some isolation and yet not, Glasgow is the place to go. I'll have a link in the show notes. Resource recommendation. So I have been buying a lot of old vehicles lately, and I have a need for owner's manuals. I mean, I, I am that person who, when I buy something, I actually read the owner's manual. Like, I just bought a new refrigerator for my house. I read the owner's manual for that. I did, and I found out all kinds of strange stuff in there, like you're supposed to not use ice for 72 hours and all this stuff. Anyway, vehicles especially, I always want the owner's manual for my vehicle. And I found a website that has a lot of owner's manuals, especially for older vehicles where, you know, it's not so easy to find them. Now, you can always go on eBay and try to find the original paper copy, and sometimes they're like 50 bucks. But manual-directory.com, that's the URL, manual-directory.com, just has online PDFs of manuals. And you can... Just search on your vehicle, like for example, let's say you have a Chevrolet, you are looking for a manual for an Express, which is the Chevrolet van, And but let's say you have an older one, right? You don't have a brand new one. Let's say you have a 1996 Chevy Express. Well, lo and behold, I just clicked on a button and I'm now looking at the complete owner's manual for that van. I mean, that's pretty cool. And there's no ads or anything on the site. It's it's kind of a crowdsource site. You can submit your own manual if you happen to have a manual for an old vehicle. And you can view it online and you see the whole thing. And then if you want to, you can just download it as a PDF. And that's what I do. I will download the owner's manuals as PDFs and put them in my phone, uh, in my books app on my phone. You could use whatever app you want. And that's really high quality. It is literally exactly the owner's manual that came with the vehicle, including a table of contents that you can search. And in many ways, it's better than the owner's manual that came with it because it explains everything. For example, if you have a 1996 Chevy Express, did you know that you need to use the ignition key to remove the seat belts in the back? I didn't know that, but I just learned that from reading the owner's manual. So it is not complete. They don't have every single vehicle ever. If you have a 1995 Chevy Express, which I don't know if they actually exist. I'm sorry, they don't have any manuals for that. But hey, give it a shot. It's free and you might find that manual that you've been looking for. So again, that's manual-directory.com. And if you have a manual that isn't on there, please take the time to turn into a PDF and upload it if you can, because your few minutes of labor could really, really get somebody out of a bind. Well, folks, before I sign off here, I have a special request. I have a project. I can't really reveal exactly what it is yet, but I need to find a male, and I'm sorry it has to be a male, but that is required, travel writer or travel photographer or somebody like that who has some social media presence. This doesn't have to be anybody famous or anything, who is willing to go on a trip all expenses paid for two weeks. 
I basically, I have a trip that I can give somebody, but I want them to document the experience and share it with the group. And if you know someone who fits that bill, go ahead and drop me a line at jeff at builttogo.com. And I will be making a decision on this probably in the next month or so. So let's say July 15th, 2023 is the deadline on that. So if you're hearing this after that, well, it's already been done. But if before July 15th, 2023, you know of somebody who would like to go on an interesting and exotic trip and have their expenses paid to go on that trip in return for them documenting the trip through photography or some sort of writing, including poetry, that would be fine. Get in touch with me at jeff at builttogo.com and we will give them consideration. I have exactly one slot open and it has to be a male because it will be sharing space with another male. That's the only reason that is. I have nothing against women, <laughs> I promise you. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 163. Hopefully, we're going to get back to a normal schedule now. Holy cow, this has been a mess. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Louis Pasteur. Let me tell you the secret that has led to my goal. My strength lies solely in my tenacity.